Emily, we're going to do all of 18 and all of 19 here tonight. Key theme here in uh, Jeremiah 18 and Jeremiah 19 is the symbolism of the pottery. Israel is a picture of the pottery and what God is going to do with that. So with that being said, let's go ahead here and take a look at verse 1. It says in Jeremiah 18, The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise, go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause you to hear my words. And I went down to the potter's house, and there he was, making something at the wheel. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter, so he made it again into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to make. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, O house of Israel, can I not do this with you as the potter, says the Lord? Look at this clay as in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O Israel. Now, You can see the symbolism here. You see this picture of Israel being a piece of clay and God molding and making Israel into what he wants it to be. That's the picture. It's a wonderful symbolism that we're this lifeless lump of clay that God takes then makes something amazing out of it. And that's what God wanted to do with Israel. He wanted to take this piece of clay and make something great out of it. Well, the problem was that Israel really wants something great to be made out of them. Verse 7. The instant I speak concerning a nation, concerning a kingdom, to pluck up, to pull down, and destroy it. If that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. And the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it, that does evil in my sight, so it does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good which which I said I would benefit it. Now here's the key, verse 11. Now therefore speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am fashioning a disaster and devising a plan against you. Return now, everyone, from his evil way and make your ways and your doings good. See, what was happening is, jump back to verse 4. Israel was marred. It was messed up. It, It was ruined. And God said, I can't use this anymore. But he gives them hope. In verses 7 through 11, he gives them this great picture of hope, saying, Okay, Israel, if this was a nation that I said I was going to judge, and if this nation repents, then I won't judge that nation. He goes, but on the same token, too, if there's a nation that I said I was going to bless, verse 9, build it, plant it, and that nation turns against me, that nation I will judge. This is an ongoing theme here in Jeremiah we've had the last few weeks. Obedience brings blessing. Disobedience brings judgment. See, Israel was given quite an opportunity to be God's chosen people. They rejected that. They didn't want that. And so now judgment is coming upon them. But at the same note, too, these other nations that God says he's going to judge, he gives them an opportunity. He gives them an opportunity to come around to the side of grace. See, there's this beautiful picture of repentance and grace. See, we look at these things and we say, well, how is this even fair? God says I'm judging Babylon. God says I'm judging Assyria. He also comes out in these passages right here and says, listen, if these evil nations repent, I'm not going to judge them. Turn if you will to Ezekiel 18. It's important to build these passages here. Ezekiel 18, because if you get in any type of theological discussion, generally speaking, with somebody that is against God, And really against God, this is one of the conversations that come up. They have a really difficult time accepting the fact that how can a God of love send somebody to hell? And that is just so far from biblical truth. As we've said out here many times before, God does not choose to send somebody to hell. They reject the gospel message, and therefore the choice that is left is hell. There are two choices. Heaven or hell. When you reject heaven, there's only one other place you can go. There's this long passage here. 
in verses 19 through 32. And we're not going to be able to cover all of it tonight because we just don't have time. But I want to hit the highlights. What happens is, verse 19, they come out and say, well, listen, how is this fair? Is it fair that if the father was a horrible man, that that son has to be judged for the father's sins? Look at verse 20. The soul who sins shall die. The son should not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. How simple is that? If you are wicked, you will be judged. If you are righteous, you won't. If your dad was the most wicked person in the world, you don't have to be destined for wickedness because of the choices your parents made. You have the choice to make a righteous choice in God. Flip that around. Just because your parents made good godly choices doesn't mean you get to ride their coattails into heaven. As it has been said, God has no grandchildren. You have to make your own personal choice of Christ yourself. Too many times you see this extreme. Someone has destined themselves to wickedness. Why? Well, you should have seen how I was raised. You should have seen how my parents were. Okay, let's move past that for a second. Do you personally want to know Christ? Well, it's not really fair. I wasn't raised in a godly home. I wasn't taken to church as a kid. Or you're an adult right now. Do you want to make a choice for Christ? Or the other side. I've seen people say, well, you know what? I went to church my whole life. I was baptized at this age. I was confirmed at this age, blah, blah, blah. Okay, great. Are you walking with the Lord right now? Well, no, but when I was a kid, I went to church all the time. I don't care. Are you walking with the Lord right now? You don't inherit your parents' righteousness, and just because your parents are wicked doesn't destine you for hell. It's a choice you make. Verse 21, If a wicked man turns from all his sins which he has committed, keeps my statutes, and does what is lawful and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. Don't you love that? I love that. Verse 23, Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die? Says the Lord God, and not that he should turn from his ways and live. If you want to know the heart of God, that's the heart of God. I think we envision God sitting up in heaven, laughing, watching people fall into the fires of hell. That he gets some joy out of this. His heart is crushed by the concept of someone rejecting him. Rejecting him. But it goes the other way too. Verse 24, what happens if a righteous man turns away from his righteousness? Verse 24, well, verse into verse 24, all that righteousness which he has done should not be remembered because of the unfaithfulness of which he is guilty and the sin which he has committed. Because of them, he shall die. Very simply put, you have to choose to walk in Christ. Look how God sums this up. Verse 30. Look at the last half. Repent and turn from all your transgressions so that iniquity will not be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions which you have committed and get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why should you die, O house of Israel? Verse 32, for I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore, turn and live. That's God's heart. God's heart is he wants these evil nations to turn towards righteousness. Look at these pictures of grace here that we put down. Just a couple quick verses. We already looked at verse 11. Return now everyone from his evil way and make your ways and doings good. Look at Ezekiel 33, 11. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And look at your sheet last one, 2 Peter 3, 9 out of the NIV. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. When I run into somebody who has got themselves convinced that God just wants to send people to hell, right then and there, I know they haven't ever looked at the Bible. 
Because that is just not a biblical concept. And when I see somebody start talking about, oh, I've read the Bible. I know what God thinks. I know how God just wants everyone to suffer. No, you don't. These passages right here show that God's heart is a heart of repentance and his heart is a heart of grace. Now, let's not overlook this point. If that person rejects truth, if that person chooses to live in sin, if that person chooses to do things that are not biblically correct and chooses to go down a path of sin, judgment will come. There's no doubt about it. But God will give them numerous opportunities for grace and repentance. They have to choose to accept it. Israel chooses not to accept it. Jump back to Jeremiah 18. Jeremiah gives them this great choice. Turn from evil and live. What's their response? Verse 12. And they said, that is hopeless. So we will walk according to our own plans and we will everyone obey the dictates of his evil heart. Gosh, verse 12 is sad. I've run into people like that. I know I'm just a horrible person. I'm just destined for hell. There's nothing that can, that can save me. Jesus can say, ah, you don't know what I've done. You don't know how horrible I am. Come on, man. You've just destined yourself to hell. See, that's exactly what Israel did. Verse 12, this is hopeless. Since this is hopeless, we might as well just do what we want to do because nothing's going to change anyway. That revealed their heart. Since that revealed their heart, verses 13 through 17, judgment will come. See, verses 1 through 11, God says you're a piece of clay. And I can mold you and make you into something good and righteous if you want me to. They chose to reject that, verse 12. Since they rejected that, verses 13 through 17, judgment comes. The same thing still happens today. People are given an opportunity for salvation. They reject the call of salvation. They destine themselves to hell. God says, since you have chosen to reject me, judgment comes. It's very sad. But it's the same thing that was happening 3,000 years ago as well, too. So, that's the first part here of verses 1 through 17. We're a pitcher of clay that is sinful and marred, but God can turn it into something good. Aren't you glad that the Lord can take this lump of clay and turn it into something good? Oh, what a blessing that is. Has anybody got any quick questions, comments on the first part here of uh, uh, Jeremiah 18? Yeah, Ryan. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's a great point. It is. It's a, absolutely a wonderful picture of this visual of, of, of somebody working with something and creating it and making it something. And this is a theme that God uses all the time. He uses this numerous times throughout the book of Isaiah as well. And, you know, we even sing worship songs like this. It's, it's a beautiful picture. And the neat thing is, and I'm not going to claim to be an expert on pottery in any way whatsoever, so take everything I say with a grain of salt. But the beautiful part about this, I have seen this done, is when the person is molding this and making this pot, and it's not turning out the way they want, crush it and start all over. And how many times have you spiritually been crushed and God just starts all over? It's a beautiful thing. As he can take this lump that started out pretty good, oh, now there's flaws in it, I can just redo it. And how many times in our Christian walk with Christ have we been this pot that started out good, got marred, got destroyed, and God says, I can start afresh with you. 
Oh, it's a beautiful picture of being born again. It's a picture of grace. It's a picture of mercy. See, the problem is sometimes as we as the pot say, I am so destroyed, I'm so useless, I'm going to jump off the potter's wheel. I can't be used anymore. Now, the great potter can always try to fix us and fix our mistakes and sin. It's a beautiful picture. Yeah, Lynette. Mm. I like that. I'm so glad he didn't throw the clay away when I was talking about song. I like that. Boy, he could have. He really could have. And, and the problem is what Israel did, and not to be repetitious on verse 12, Israel threw themselves away. Israel basically said, this is hopeless. We can't be fixed. This can't be changed. We might as well just quit and do what we want to do. God didn't want to do that. Grace and mercy. If that's the only thing you get out of tonight, is no matter what type of sin you're in right now, no matter what type of mess your life is in right now, grace and mercy. God loves you. It's a beautiful thing to be obedient then to what he wants. Anybody else have anything I want to say before we move on? There's one other pottery example that we does here, and then we'll get back to Jeremiah. Jump ahead, if you will, to Jeremiah 19. We'll get back and we'll do verses 18 through 23 here in a second. But Jeremiah 19, there's one more pottery example here. This is pottery part two. It says in verse one, Thus says the Lord, Go and get a potter's earthen flask and take some of the elders of the people and some of the elders of the priests. Go into the valley of the son of Hinnom, which is by the entry of the potsherd gate, and proclaim the words that I will tell you. The valley of Hinnom there means lamentation. And say, Hear the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah and inhabitants of Israel. Thus says the Lord of hosts, God of Israel, Behold, I will bring such a catastrophe on this place that whoever hears of it, his ears will tingle. Because they have forsaken me and made this an alien place because they have burned incense in it to other gods from neither they, their fathers, nor the kings of Judah have known. And have filled this place with the blood of the innocents. They have also built the high place of Zebaal to burn their sons with fire for burnt offerings to Zebaal, which I do not command or speak nor did it come into my mind. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, to this place shall no longer be called Tophet or the Valley of Sun or Hinnom, but the Valley of Slaughter. Then he goes on to say in verse 7 how he will destroy them. Verse 8, they will be desolate. Verse 9, destruction. And then verse 10, you shall break the flask in the sight of the men who go with you and say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, even so I will break this people in this city as one breaks a potter's vessel which cannot be made whole again, and there they shall bury them, Tophet, till there is no place to bury. You see the picture there. Jeremiah calls all the leadership of Israel. He's got this pot in his hand. He takes them outside the gate of Israel. He proclaims this on them in verses uh, 6, 7, and 8, saying there's going to be destruction coming, and then very dramatically he takes the pot throws it down and breaks it see and that's what he's trying to say here is this nation of israel has now been broken hence verse 11 thus says the lord of hosts even so i will break this people in the city as one breaks a potter's vessel which cannot be made whole again and that's what he did as he broke them babylon came down and broke them now if you would just look at chapter 19 once again, we'd go down this road of God's just mean and nasty and he hates us and all that other type of stuff. What about chapter 18? Before he breaks the piece of pottery, he says, I want to make this pottery into something else. See, here's the thing. If I see somebody laying on their deathbed at 85 years of age or whatever it is, and I see them dying and going to hell because they've rejected Jesus, I don't see a mean, nasty God. I see somebody who was given eight decades of life to have a chance to accept Christ, and they chose to reject again and again and again. See, when I see that person at 30 or 40 or 50 making horrible life choices and I see their life going downhill, I don't see some mean, angry God that's destined them to a life of whatever. 
I see somebody that's probably made choices that weren't good again and again and again. Because I know the Bible teaches me that God is the potter and I am the clay. And He does want to mold me and make me into something. And He only gets to the point of breaking the clay when we constantly reject His grace and mercy. Constantly. Like I said, I don't know how many times people call me up or come into my office and they've been saying, my whole life has been miserable. Why has your life been miserable? Has it been miserable because of this and this and this and this? And really why their life has been miserable is, yes, maybe they had some beginnings of their life that there was beyond their control, but then there was a lot of choices they made later on that was not good. That was them jumping off the potter's wheel saying, I'd rather choose sin and death and destruction. Because chapter 18 makes it abundantly clear. God loves them. Why do they jump off the wheel? Verse 15. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will bring on this city and on all her towns all the doom that I have pronounced against it, because they have stiffened their necks that they may not hear my words. Why did God judge them? Verse 15 makes it clear they were stubborn. They were prideful. They were arrogant. They chose not to hear the words of God. They became prideful and arrogant, so therefore destruction came. That's the truth. I was just having a conversation with somebody not too long ago, and the subject came up of one of those passages in the Old Testament of where God says, kill every man, woman, and child. Now, if you look at that just on the outside of God saying, kill every man, woman, and child, you can see how somebody gets the picture of God, and why would I want to follow that? But when you look at the full story, what you don't realize is earlier in the chapter, one of the kings of Israel came and stood outside the city and said, hey, we're going to judge you. And anybody that doesn't want to get judged, get out of the city. They don't realize for 450 years before that judgment happened that they were warned again and again and again. If for 450 years I told you that if you go to this place, and if you go to this place, you will surely die there. So don't go to this place. And I've told you this for centuries. And then even before you go to that place, and I will tell you one more time as you're at that place, hey, remember, if you're here, you're going to die. So everybody leave that doesn't want to die. If you choose to stay, whose fault is that? That's God for centuries showing love, grace, and mercy. The problem is if you just look at that passage of God says, kill every man, woman, and child, ah, God's nasty. No, he's not. He waited 450 years to do it because of grace and mercy. He warned them again, grace and mercy. Nation of Israel, Jeremiah has been crying his heart out here saying, guys, change. But they choose not to. How much of our Christian life is spent telling people not to do it? Don't do that. That's going to hurt you. Don't do that. That's going to cause problems. And they go do it. Half of what we do as a Christian just seems to be warning people, stay away from the fire. But they have to choose to want to stay away from the fire. The nation of Israel chose to reject the warnings. They chose to reject God. They wanted sin. And since they wanted sin, they became the potter's piece that was broken. That's the nation of Israel. Now, before we get into what Jeremiah did with this, does anybody have any final quick questions, comments about Israel and the destruction that came upon them? Now, look here at Jeremiah's response. Verse 18 of chapter 18. Then they said, Come, let us devise plans against Jeremiah, for the law shall not perish from the priest, nor counsel from the wise, nor the word from the prophet. Come, let us attack him with the tongue, and let us not give heed to any of his words. As we've said out here many times, forgive me for the repetition, as far as we know, Jeremiah was a prophet for over 40 years, and no one ever listened to him. 
Just in a couple chapters here, they're going to throw him in the stocks and start beating him up. For 40 years, this guy just prophesied and preached and prayed and cried and wept over Israel. And as far as we can tell, not a single person ever listened to him. In fact, when Jeremiah gave these messages, you see the response in verse 18. Let's attack him. Now, if you're in Jeremiah's position, what would you do? Well, the biblical response is what? Pray for your enemies. Pray for those who despitefully use you. Bless those who curse you. We know all those things, right? What's the human response? Lord, curse them, right? Well, Jeremiah is human. Look at verse 19. Give heed to me, O Lord, and listen to my voice of those who contend with me. Shall evil be repaid for good? They have dug a pit for my life. Remember that I stood before you to speak good for them, to turn away your wrath from them. Basically, Lord, I have stood up for these people. Verse 21. Therefore, deliver up their children to their famine. Pour out their blood by the force of the sword. Let their wives become widows and bereaved of their children. Let their men be put to death, their young men be slain by the sword in battle. Now, some of you right now are saying, verse 21 is a good refrigerator verse. It's, it's not a good refrigerator verse. I don't care who your enemy is. Listen to what he's praying. Deliver their children to famine. Pour out their blood by the force of the sword. Let their wives become widows, bereaved of their children. Let men be put to death, and their young men be slain, beat the sword in battle. That is what Jeremiah is praying for his enemies. Sometimes people come up to me and say, how do you know the Bible's true? Because I would, my response always is, if mankind wrote this, we would not put that in there. That, that is an honest passage. That's honesty. Now, just because Jeremiah said that, just because Jeremiah prayed that does not make it right. See, people have a tendency to see passages like that in the Bible and say, see, that's what God's like. No, that's not what God's like. That's God allowing us to see what was going on in Jeremiah's heart. Now, let's not be hypocrites. We may not have prayed verse 21 verbatim, but I'm willing to bet in your years of your life, you have been so angry at somebody, you have thought very similar things that I don't care if they fall off the face of the earth. I don't care if something horrible happens to them. Now, imagine all your thoughts being recorded in a Bible for people to read and study for thousands of years. Jeremiah, there's no way to defend this. But this is an honest prayer. Verse 22, Let a cry be heard from their houses when you bring a troop suddenly upon them, for they have dug a pit to take me and hidden snares from my feet. Yet, Lord, you know all their counsel which is against me to slay me. Provide no atonement for their iniquity, nor blot out their sin from your sight. But let them be overthrown before you deal thus with them in the time of your anger. He goes one step further in verse 23. Don't even forgive them, Lord. See, now, verse 21, let them suffer physically. I'm not saying I agree with that, okay. Verse 23, let them suffer spiritually. He's basically praying these people into hell. Provide no atonement for their iniquity, nor blot out their sin from your sight. We have a phrase that we use in our English language, and it's become so commonplace, but we usually tell somebody to, I don't know, go to hell or something like that. It's a horrible phrase. We were doing devotions with the boys today, and we reached this point of, of talking about hell, what it was. And the weeping and the gnashing of teeth and the utter darkness forever and ever and in the fires of hell. And little Judah, our second one, who's the emotional one, his little eyes start tearing up. Why? He says he can't believe people would actually do that. I said, Judah, I can't believe people would actually choose that either. When you really start thinking about what hell is and the severity and the horror of it, you would never wish that on anybody. What's Jeremiah doing in verse 23? 
He's wishing that on people. Now, once again, we're all perfect here tonight, and we've never once thought anything along that type of line. And we've never once at all thought anything bad or negative, and we always pray for our enemies, and we never hold any grudges or anything along that type of line. Now, Jeremiah is at least being honest. And in that honesty, it's a little overwhelming when you look at that. It's a little overwhelming when you look at some of the stuff that he's saying there. Turn, if you will, to Psalm 140, please. Psalm 140. Once again, just because something is in the Bible doesn't necessarily mean that's what God believes. He writes the honesty of it. There's something in the Bible, in Psalm 1, it's Psalm 140 an example of this. And there's a big fancy word, and we don't even need to know what the word is. The simpler layman's term is they're called cursing psalms. These are psalms that David wrote in anger. These are psalms that the people of Israel wrote in anger. And as you look through them, this is our flesh. Psalm 140. Deliver me, O Lord, from evil men. Preserve me from violent men who plan evil things in their hearts. Verse 4. Keep me, O Lord, from the hands of the wicked. That's so far, that's not so bad. Jump ahead, if you will, though, please, to uh, verse 9. As for the head of those who surround me, let the evil of their lips cover them. Let burning coals fall upon them. Let them be cast into the fire, into deep pits, that they may not rise up again. Have you ever called for one of your enemies to be burned? That's actually not that bad. Jump over to Psalm 137. Psalm 137. This is not one that we normally teach on. Verse 1 of Psalm 137 gives us the background. By the rivers of Babylon. So this was written by the Jews that had been taken captive by Babylon. This is a psalm that was written after the book of Jeremiah. They have now been taken captive. They have now been in Babylon. They've suffered. Verse 1, we remembered Zion. Verse 3, for there those who carried us away captive asked of us a song. Basically they said, hey Jews, sing for us a song. Verse 4, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Have you ever been so depressed and discouraged? How, how, how can I even sing? How can I praise? How many times have you ever come into church and you've brought your burdens into church and instead of during the time of praise and worship and letting go of your burdens, you just sit there stone-faced? I can't even praise. I can't even sing. I can't even pray. And you're just fuming. You're just angry. Verse 7, Remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem. They said, raise it, raise it to the very foundation. Verse 7, you just keep rethinking. I remember everything they said. I remember everything they said about me. Verse 8, O daughter of Babylon, who will be destroyed, happy the one who repays you as you have served us. You have that anger fantasy. Verse 9, happy the one who takes and dashes your little ones against the rock. That's not a refrigerator verse again. That is an honest heart of someone who is struggling with sin, with hatred, with anger. Jeremiah was going through that between chapters 18 and 19. Chapter 18, he had been constantly telling Israel, repent, repent, repent. Their response, I don't care. I mean, it's like having a loved one walking right into the fire, and you're walking right beside them saying, don't walk in the fire, don't walk in the fire, don't. And they just walk willfully right into the fire. Jeremiah had a breakdown in Jeremiah 18. He lost it. 
this is horrible. I can't stand this anymore. They're against me. Lord, take away their families. Take away their, their forgiveness. Take it all away. Psalm 137. They are sitting there in Babylon. They have suffered for years. They're looking out at Babylon and says, Lord, crush them. Crush them. Destroy them. That is an honest assessment. See, and that's one of the reasons why i got to be honest. I, I like the Bible. I like honesty. I don't like it when someone comes in and sugarcoats and you say, hey, how are you doing? You know, I'm doing okay. No, you're not doing okay. Tell me honestly. I'm struggling. I'm angry. I'm upset. I'm disappointed. I'm depressed. I'm discouraged. I'm in sin. When you're honest, we can deal with it. But when there's this fakeness, as we talked about Sunday, this hypocrisy, you can't deal with it. See, the problem with the nation of Israel, they were a pot that was worthless. It was destroyed. It was marred. It was ruined. But Israel didn't care. God said, I can fix this. Israel chose not to be fixed. Now, we all have loved ones that need to be fixed. We all have loved ones that are making bad choices. And the truth of the matter is they have to choose to want those choices to be fixed. The only thing we can do is pray for them and point them in the right direction. And maybe sometimes you have a little Jeremiah moment. Instead of being merciful towards them, you're just angry. You're angry at the stupid choices they make again and again and again. Now, last point I'm going to say is, sometimes we're the pot that knows it needs to be fixed. We know there's sin in our life. We know there's things that we're doing that's wrong. And to be quite honest, we just don't care. That is a dangerous place to be. Because in Jeremiah 18, God wants to take that ruined pot and fix it. By Jeremiah 19, God says there's no hope. I just need to bust the pot up. We never want to get to the point that we become so hard that we can't be used by the Lord, that we can't be, we totally reject. Israel reached that point. I tell you, if you got somebody that you know is constantly walking down the bad path, the only thing you can do is pray for them and point them in the right direction and pray they listen. If you're that one walking down that path, I tell you right here, right now, it is a whole lot better before the Lord decides to break you to willfully go to Him and say, Lord, there's areas in my life that need to be fixed. And I don't want to live that type of life anymore. Israel is an example given to us of what to do sometimes. But here in Jeremiah 18 and 19, they're an example of what not to do, to learn from that. Does anybody have any final questions, comments here about anything we went over or anything like that? John. Thanks for bringing up such a tough topic, John, in front of everybody. We could have waited two minutes and we could have just talked privately about this, but no, I'm just kidding you, man. Turn to 1 John real quick. 1 John. Cigarettes pop up a lot. Cigarettes pop up a lot. And because the reason cigarettes pop up a lot is people make this comment about, um, oh, your body's the temple of the Holy Spirit. Why would you want to do anything to your body? Because if your body's the temple of the Holy Spirit, why would you want to do that? And I don't think anybody would disagree with that. You know, I've run into many people that smoke, and I've run into many people that smoke that want to quit smoking, and I've never run into one person that says, oh, I think it's actually good for me. I don't think anybody thinks that. Now, here's the thing. I'm not picking on anybody, and please don't think I am. I've seen people tell me that, you know, cigarette smoking is bad, and any Christian that smokes cigarettes probably isn't really saved. They're also the people eating 25 Snickers bars a day. And physically, there's some other issues going on in their lives where they're not making good, healthy, godly choices. So, we got to be careful on how far we take that. But I think the question you're asking there, John, 
correct me if I'm wrong, is what is the difference between I know there's something wrong in my life and I want that area fixed and changed versus the difference between I just don't care, correct? Okay, I think 1 John is a great place to go with that. And let's take this to 1 John chapter 3. And let's go ahead and start in verse 4. 1 John 3 verse 4. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Okay, very simple put. Verse 4, we're sinners. Verse 5, Jesus takes away sin. Verse 6, whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor know him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever is born of God does not sin. For his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. Verse 9 has been taken, has been taken out of context many times. I can remember, and we're running out of time here, I can remember one time being at college and somebody standing up in the podium quoting this verse saying a true believer will never sin. That you reach a point in your spiritual Christian life where you no longer sin. That's not what verse 9 is saying in any way whatsoever. What that word is saying when it says does not sin and cannot sin in the Greek languages means they do not continue in sin. So what it's saying here is when you have been born again in God and you have been changed by Christ, those things that you did in your previous life, that there now is conviction, there now is struggle with that, and you can't continue in that life because as you continue in that life, you are convicted by that. And the Holy Spirit, I believe in verse 9 where it says, His seed remains in Him. Some people believe that's the Holy Spirit. Some people believe that's the Word of God. The point is that you are now a child of God, and as a child of God, you can't continue in those things because you feel convicted. You feel that you need to repent. You feel like you need to change. So what I normally do is I go up to somebody in verse 9, and I say this, that sin that you're struggling with, are you convicted by that? I'm convicted by that like you wouldn't believe. I cry myself to sleep every night. I do not want to be this type of man of God. I don't want to do this. I take him this passage, and I say, see, you are a child of God. You don't want to live this way. You don't want to act this way. And then they usually say, okay, if I don't want to live this way and I don't want to act this way, why am I still doing these things then? Why is this a struggle? If I've been walking with the Lord, how long have you been saved, you said, John? 2001. 2001. I've been saved since 1993. And for nearly 20 years, the same things I struggle with now, some of the stuff is the same things I struggled with 20 years ago. That's a horrible thing. And Satan loves condemnation. Last thing I'm going to do, because we're running out of time, please go to Romans 7 real quick. If you've got to get up and go, go ahead. I just want to finish this passage up real quick. So, we've established that concept in 1 John 3 then. Okay, if I'm a child of God, why am I still doing these things? Why am I still struggling? Look what Paul wrote here in Romans chapter 7. This is a great, great passage. And this is one that, uh, boy, you mark it. You, you, you just follow it. I'm actually going to read this out of the New Living Translation. I think it reads a little more clear here. Romans 7, let's go ahead and pick it up. Verse, oh, let's say verse 14 or 15. 14. This is New Living Translation. So the trouble is not with the law, for it is spiritual and good. The trouble is with me. For I am all too human, a slave to sin. Look at verse 15. I don't really understand myself. For what I want to do, what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But I know that I, what I'm doing is wrong. That shows that I agree the law is good. So I'm not the one doing it. It is sin living in me that hates it. 
Verse 18, I know that nothing good lives in me. That is my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I'm not really the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. I have discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart. See, is that not us? God, I love you with everything, but there's this sin. Verse 23, but there's another power within me that has a war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. So you see how it is. In my mind, I really want to obey God's law. But because of my sinful nature, I'm a slave to sin. Verse 1 of chapter 8 has to go with this. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. See, as a born-again believer, you will feel convicted when that sin keeps popping up again and again and again. That conviction is God's way of lovingly tapping you on the heart, saying, don't continue down this path. Condemnation is from the enemy. It's from the pit of hell. That condemnation is tapping you on the shoulder, saying, you are worthless. You are horrible. How, how can you get up and teach on Sunday when I know what you thought this week? How can you call yourself a loving father when I saw the way you snapped at your kids? How can you call yourself a devoted wife or husband when I see what your mind thinks? You're a horrible person. That's condemnation. That's from hell. Conviction is, James, we need to work on this. <laughs> Sunday's coming up. Let's work on this for a few days. James, you need to have a little more patience with the kids. That's God's loving conviction. So when I see Romans 7, I see an honest chapter by an honest man being led by the Spirit saying, the things I want to do, I don't, and the things I don't want to do, I do. What is the problem with me? The problem is I'm a fleshly, evil, sinful man. And what's the answer? Look at verses 24 and 25 one more time in Romans 7. O wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? See, too often we stop at verse 24 and we just get depressed and discouraged. You need the victory of verse 25. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Christ is the one that gives the answer and he, and he helps us through it. So yeah, some of you may disagree with this, but I think biblically speaking, sometimes there's going to be things that you're going to struggle with to the day you die. As long as there is an ounce of flesh on your body, sin is still going to be trying to pull you down. Yes, we can have moments of victory. Yes, we can move forward. But the truth of the matter is, until I have my first breath in heaven, there's going to be an element of sin in me that's a struggle to the day I die. Yeah, David. Well, I think what happens is, that's a good question. How can you be forgiven for a sin if you first have to repent? Repent means to literally do a 180. There's times in our life where we do repent. We do the 180, and we stay away from that. You know, I, I, Lord, I'm not going to cuss like that anymore. I'm not going to lust like that anymore. I'm not going to drink like that anymore. And so maybe that walk of victory goes on for four, five, six, seven, eight days, four, five, six, seven, eight months. But what the problem is, that sin nature is still in us, and so we have repented of that sin, and then what happens, it bubbles back up. And it goes back then, if you want to get the full picture of this, and I know we're running out of time here, Galatians 6, 
Galatians 6 teaches us that this sin nature just keeps bubbling back up, and it's a constant battle till the day we die. Look at Galatians 6, verse, excuse me, Galatians 5, verse 16. Walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, and you do not do the things that you wish. See, there's this constant battle between spirit and flesh all of our lives. So therefore, verse 17, I don't do the things that I want. I don't want to act that way. I don't want to think that way. I don't want to be that way. But the flesh overtakes it and my weakness. And in that weakness, I sin. So yeah, we do repent of those things and we have moments of victory. But then what happens is we jump back into the flesh sometimes and then have moments of defeat. And that's where thank the Lord for Jesus Christ, grace and mercy. It's a loving thing. Yeah, Seth. Yeah, perfection comes in heaven. Until the day we die, it's an ongoing battle just to be more like Christ and all we do and say. It doesn't give us the green light to not keep moving forward, but it's something that we are trying to just say, Lord, I want to be like you in everything I do and everything I say. So, but you know what? we got little ones in the back, and we're going to have parents here wanting us to get us go. So we got to pray here and close up. Uh, Heavenly Father, we are thankful for this, and we just pray that we just have a focus on you and all that we do and all that we say, that we would truly live for you, truly live for you, and make that choice to follow you, Lord. And Lord, for those that are struggling, I pray that you give them strength in all ways just to be victorious in you. We lift this up in your name. Amen. All right, you guys have a good week, and God bless.